This is The Squad Room, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the 21st season of SVU. If you have not watched episode 2115, Swimming with the Sharks, we advise you to do so before listening. Hello and welcome back to The Squad Room, the official Law & Order SVU podcast. I am your host, Anthony Roman, and this is episode 2115, Swimming with the Sharks. And we are going to do something different this time, as we are lucky to have in The Squad Room, legendary Law & Order composer Mike Post. So before we dig into this week's episode, we talk to him about how he created the iconic sound of the show and his long-standing collaboration with Dick Wolf. After that, guest star Rada Mitchell discusses her daring portrayal of Luna Prasada. And finally, the writer of Swimming with the Sharks, Lisa Takeuchi Cullen, fills us in on how this story came to life. All this is happening right here on The Squadron, which, as always, is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. I'm on The Squad Room with Mike Post, and thanks for coming on. Uh, my pleasure. I know your relationship with Dick Wolf started when you were both working on Hill Street Blues, but maybe you could tell me how the whole Law & Order thing began. Um, the way I met Dick was after Bochco left Universal, he went to MTM, and he came up with a show called Hill Street Blues, and so I did that and working hard on it, and maybe in year seven or year six, Bochco moved on, left Hill Street Blues to be produced by David Milch, and David was hiring writers, and one of the writers he hired was this guy, Dick Wolf. And I thought Dick was a really good writer. I really did, and I liked his stuff, and we met. I just liked the guy, and I think he liked me. And so it was just a working friendship at that point. And then one day after Hill Street, maybe two or three years after Hill Street, I get this call, and Dick says, hey, would you have a drink with me? I said, sure, of course. He said, meet me at Ma Maison, which was this little French restaurant about 100 yards from the main gate of Universal. And I, I went over there, and I said, okay, what's going on? He goes, well, I'm sitting here at Universal. I've done one movie, School Ties, kind of did well. He said, but I've got an idea for a show. And I said, okay, great. And he said, well, I don't know if you're aware, but these hour cop and lawyer and medical dramas, they're not syndicating very well. The syndication is sort of owned by the half hours, by Family Ties and Cosby and blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, I'm I'm sort of aware of that. And he goes, so I was thinking that we would shoot a show in an hour format, but the first half hour we would do the crime and the bad guys and the cops, and then the second half hour we'd do the prosecution and the trial and the defense and do the lawyers. I said, wait a second, I'm having trouble tracking you. You shoot it as an hour and then you syndicate it in half hours? He goes, yeah. I went, wow, that's a great idea. That's a <laughs> fantastic, man, that is smart. What are you going to call this? He goes, Law and Order. And I went, man, that's a great idea. That is fabulous. I'm in. He goes, no, no, I, I don't know what I can pay you. And, you know, you're so busy and you're doing five or six shows. And I, I mean, your name would really help me with the tower and, and with the network. But I don't know if I can. I said, I didn't start doing this thing for money. I started doing it for music. And this sounds great. Where are you going to do it? He's in New York. And I said, I'm in for sure. For <laughs> sure. I'm in. And he goes, okay, great. He goes, let me go to work on a script. Your name will help me. And I said, fantastic. I'm glad to do it. I don't care what you pay me. So he sent me a script, and we were off and running. And obviously the dun-dun sound has to be discussed. I mean, it's possibly the most 
famous um, in television history or one of the most famous. When did that come about and what was the discussions leading up to it? So I do the pilot and it's good. I know it's good. He knows it's good. It's just good. And he was really pleased and he gave me great direction. I mean, just simple, short sentences of what he was trying to do as a filmmaker. Really good direction. So I'm all done. I'm all finished. Phone rings. Ah, it's Dick on the phone. Hey, how's it going? And this is like a day before the dub. So I've been finished for a week, you know. And he said, hey, I decided to date stamp some scene changes, most scene changes. I said, oh, so you're going to just print something out on the screen, time and a day and where we are? He goes, right. So I need a sound to go with it. I said, great. Uh, do you have a sound department? Call sound effects. I'm a composer. He goes, no, 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 no. I need a real distinctive sound. I said, did you hear me? <laughs> I'm a composer. I'm not going to do this. He goes, would you stop busting my balls? Just make me a sound, will you? I went, oh, God, what a pain in the ass you are. All right, we're friends. What the hell? So I came in <laughs> to the studio. I said, all right, Dick needs me to do something to go with a little card that's going to come up with a place and a time. The scene changes. He goes, all right. And it was just at the cusp of samples and sounds and music all being sequenced and not actually played by players. It was more, you know, we were just getting in to the shift in TV and film. So we had a fairly extensive library of stuff. So we started looking around. I said, hey, give me a sound of a jail door slamming. Okay, we find that clang, this big iron kind of sound, you know, clang, clang. I said, all right, now give me a sound of a guy hitting an anvil with a hammer. So, oh, we get that. Okay, great. I said, all right, I need some more stuff. So we went into the studio and we, we made some drum noises. With I had a drum set in the studio, so we took different things and started banging on them. We, we took about three or four of those sounds and combined them, and we still just didn't have enough heft to it, you know, not enough bottom to it. So we looked around and we found a sample of 100 men in Japan on a wood floor stomping just everybody stomping on a wood floor in Japan. And I went, oh, that's neat. That's different. So we put all those together, and I sent it over, and I said, is this kind of, and it went bang, bang, or thump, thump, or whatever you call it. And he goes, perfect, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> so after maybe a year or two or three, he sends me a note, Dick sends me a note one day. He says, now, smart guy, what do you think of this? He said, on your headstone, you're going to be known for two notes that aren't even notes, you know. <laughs> Everything you've written that's pretty good, he said, and you're going to be known for the one thing you didn't even want to do. That's <laughs> a know? fair point. Although I have to say your theme songs to Hill Street Blues and Law and & Order are pretty legendary and memorable as well. Thank you. Thank you. And quite beautiful. And I remember the Hill Street Blues one when I was a kid. Talk about the Law & Order one. Yeah, so this was really early in the process. All I had was a script which I loved. So, you know, I called him. I said, okay, it's a great script. I said, so let's talk. The first thing you, you always talk about with a producer is the general feeling of it. And it was so obvious from the page of what this story was about. Uh, I said, you know, obviously this thing is minor. You know, it's got some slink to it. I said, what are you thinking about? What are you hearing in your head? And he said, well, he goes, you know, it's all going to be in New York. It's always going to be in New York. It's not going on the road. It's not going to L.A. It's not going to Chicago. It's not going. I said, so you want me to sound like New York? He goes, yeah. 
absolutely. He said, no, I want you to define New York. I said, well, somebody already did that. His name is Gershwin. Okay, I, I'm not going to rewrite Rhapsody in Blue. He goes, why not? <laughs> and I said, oh, for God's sakes, Dick, come on. He goes, no. He said, that's what I want. Do that. He said, but I think you're right. It's got to be snaky. It's got to be under control. It can't be bombastic. It can't be frenetic. You know, it's got to kind of slink. And I went, okay, Rhapsody in Blue, contemporary, slinky, snaky. Hmm, okay, I'll call you back. You know, I thought about it for a day, and then I sat down, and the first thing that came around was bum bum that lick, you know, the 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 base the basic lick, and I just bought a new guitar called a Kramer, a black Stratocaster yeah. type guitar, you know, and I'd been kind of listening to Van Halen with the tapping thing, that sort of deal. So I had the little piano lick. I had the first set of changes on the A section, and I started playing guitar to it on this black Kramer, and I thought, oh, that's that's kind of greasy. That's kind of funky, you know, in a sort of city kind of way. And I thought to myself, you know, i got to find a way to get something from Rhapsody in Blue, that sensibility into this thing. And that's when the B section with the clarinet came the next day. And I put that down and uh, asked Dick to come over. And he's really smart. He's just really good at his job as a producer. So he walked in, he listened to it, he went, okay, play that again. I played it again, play it again. I played it a third time. It was about, I think the original version of it was a minute 15 or a minute 20, something like that. And he just looked at me and said, you know what? That's my show. And I went, really? And he goes, yep. I said, you know, I'm I'm open for collaboration. I'm open to change something if you want. And he goes, nope. And he called me the next day and said, it's perfect. Don't change anything. It's great. And so... That's the way it happened, and it was relatively easy because how good he was for me as a composer in his, what he asked me to do. It was just perfect producing. And Dick Wolf is, he's tremendous at that. He he right away says, I don't know what I want musically, but here's what I'm trying to do with the film. Here's what I'm trying to say with the story. And that's what a composer's job is. You know, a composer's job is to figure out how to take that guy's sensibilities and put it into music and you know i always look at it like if these guys could write music what would they want what would they write and then i try and write that so moving specifically to svu and season 21 i want to talk about your process just currently like where in the editorial process do you start working on the episode i'm the last guy you know i'm the last guy in everything's been done editing is finished so is I'm, the cut locked before you begin? In quotes, yes. Right. And that doesn't mean that they won't change a thing here or there. And and they do, you know, small stuff. But they're so efficient. You know, there's nobody better than Arthur Fournay at getting this thing done. And Mark is a great line post-producer. I mean, he's really great at his job. And those two guys together, they never ask anything that can't be done pretty easily. I've done shows that were up against it, air dates so tight that other guys would faint. Fortunately, that stuff doesn't bother me. I'm so used to it after 40-some-odd seasons, you know. I'm just so used to getting it done fast. And if something comes back, you know, if they come back to me and say, hey, we love everything, but this doesn't work, this one cue doesn't work, or this doesn't work, or that, you know, I have no problem 
Every piece of music I write has two prerequisites. I got to like it and they got to love it. And if they don't love it, it's no good. So just do it again. I like writing music. So when I get changes from Arthur or Mark or anybody, you know, even uh, if Dick doesn't like something, no problem. Easy. Let me take another swing at it and tell me what you don't like about it. Tell me what you were expecting from it. And let me see if I can make you happy. So right now, this is a very well-oiled machine. There's almost no redos of anything. They always give me at least four or five days. And that's enough time. That's enough time to make it really right. You know, Mark Dragan is really good at looking at the film from a producer's standpoint, but he also can look at it with me and give me his feelings as a producer with an eye towards what the music needs to help him tell the story. Arthur's a master at that. So, you know, I work with two people. John O'Hara is sort of the computer sequencing guy, and Andy Berkheimer is my engineer. And the three of us just do the music. And literally, I can do a show in a day, compositionally, and then it'll take them another two days or three to, in quotes, tweak it. In other words, you know, complete all the soundscape of it and make it really, really perfect, all the polishing. And that's a great way to work. And season 21, it's just gotten better. She's better. The writing's great. I mean, the writing is really great. And the show's evolving, and I think the music is too. There's much more music now than there was you know, 20 years ago, and storytelling's different, and I'm enjoying the long and winding road, you know. I, people say, God, aren't you tired of just writing the same stuff over and over? And I, Absolutely not, because I'm not writing the same stuff over. It's in the same ballpark, and it's, it's all theme-based, and it's all, yeah, but I... I'm not bored at all. Maybe I'm just so stupid that I like playing, you know, it's like working in a club and the owner loves Proud Mary and so you got to play Proud Mary, you know, every night. I, I don't mind. I, I like Proud Mary. I like Law & Order. I like the music. I know I'm, I'm having fun. So you've noticed a difference in 21 with, I mean, obviously you've worked with Warren on Criminal Intent. You've worked with him now a couple times here on SVU. You feel a difference this season? Oh, With huge. his return? Oh, huge. I mean, God, it's just so obvious, you know? And that's not to say that Trinuchin isn't a great writer and a great producer. And look, you know, there's been a long line of guys here that are really good at their job, but they're not cookie cutter. And they're not all Dick Wolf. It's sort of like Dick Wolf is the architect. And here's what the house looks like, guys. And the showrunners are the decorators. And they're the ones that say, no, 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 we're going to put the couch over there and then we're going to put the TV over here. And, and the new guy comes in and goes, guys, pull that carpet up. It's going to be wood floors, you know. It's, my job's pretty simple. I'm supposed to make the scarier parts scarier, the happier parts happier, the sexier parts, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I don't invent these words. I don't act them. I don't shoot them. I don't edit them. Regarding, like, the characters having more backstories and stuff in the current incarnation, do you enjoy scoring that? Does it, yeah. does it matter to you? Okay. Yeah, it matters. Because that's a different palette for you, right? That's that, a different thing than you were doing. That's exactly right. You know, it's like, oh, okay, we got two more colors on this board where we put the paint, you know, that we hold in our left hand and we take the brush with our right hand and, oh, I get two more colors to mess with. So that's precisely correct. And worn... If anybody doesn't think Warren is, is really smart and really good at his job, 
whoever doesn't think this guy is great is an idiot because <laughs> this guy is really good at his job. Mike Post, thank you so much for coming on the squad room and talking to us about the music. And hopefully we'll talk to you again sometime. Thank you. Have a great day, Anthony. Rada Mitchell got right off her flight from Australia and onto the SVU stage here in New York to portray Luna Prasada. She sat down with me to discuss what I think is one of this season's best performances. I am on the squad room with Rada Mitchell, and thank you for joining me. Well, good afternoon, evening. Evening, morning. she doesn't even know because she hasn't <laughs> been outside today, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Well, so, I'm here now. Yeah. With you. That's right. And she just wrapped Swimming with Sharks, which is a fantastic episode. And we're going to dig into it a bit. Warren was telling me that you got this part maybe like a day before you started shooting. Is that yeah. true? Okay. I had just planned it. Uh, I was in Australia for holidays and I had just scheduled this whole kind of trip to Byron Bay and then down to Tasmania and I get a phone call about this episode. Then I read it and I was like, wow, what a great role that you have like uh, 10 minutes to decide if you want to do it because we're shooting it tomorrow. And it's like, a, I don't know how long the flight is by the time you get here, 24 hours or something. So, of course, I said yes. And then I found myself in sort of the dilemma of like, how am I going to prepare for it? So I had a bit of time on the plane and then basically landed, came straight to set and, you know, started in the courtroom, which was the perfect place to begin. Right. When you're right. a bit wrecked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So in that 24-hour period of reading the script, what were you doing to become Luna? Well, I landed on set. I had two days of shoot and then the weekend. So on the weekend, like, you know, as I was sort of cruising through that weird sort of jet lag state where you're like bodies and, you know, you're kind of cramped and you're awake at four o'clock in the morning, I was just watching a lot of YouTube clips, just hearing what people were saying in terms of like this new sort of sense of what feminism is in this culture and, you know, the sort of post-Me Too kind of climate. Yeah. Um, the part has a lot of elements that they were saying is a more modern script for SVU. I yeah. was thinking of you, uh, the first time I saw you was in High Art, which oh, I yeah. thought was really kind of pushy envelope in a way. So obviously you're not uncomfortable with these kinds of challenges, right? Yeah. Well, no, that was another New York story. Yeah. Um, and also, I guess, sort of the fluidity of this character's sexuality. Right. She identifies as pansexual. She's kind of pushing the envelope of what you can do as a woman that wasn't maybe acceptable three years ago or ten years ago. And she's an empowered character. She's a she-e-o. Yeah. And yet, although the subject's quite serious, we had a lot of fun with her. And I think when I first read it, I was like, oh, my God, her name's Luna. She's a lunatic. But as I started to inhabit her, I actually felt her perspective was valid and I really like what she's about. So I grew to kind of not just enjoy playing her, but sort of respect her perspective. So like, was there an element almost where you initially maybe would make fun of a character like that and then you started to understand it? Well, that was interesting about the tone because we had fun with yeah. the character. And I think it was sort of delicate and it was great because we had a female director, Martha Mitchell, yeah. who's not a relative of mine. No, I figure. We do share that name. <laughs> right. And the writer, Lisa, also was a woman. And a lot of the scenes were between women. Yeah. So where we could have maybe made mistakes, I don't think we did just because of the general sort of female empathy that was in the space. When you're playing a character who is not lying, but we're supposed to think that she's lying, is that yeah. hard to do? Because there's a lot of layers to that. Do you think about that or do you just present it 
as is. I was thinking a little bit about it because there's presentation of the scene before the event when she sort of, is she seducing Bobby or what? She's having a drink. Oh, right, right. Okay, Um, in the teaser. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was an interesting moment to sort of consider it, but um, in terms of how it's going to be perceived, um, I just played it as if she's having fun, you know, and that she's kind of taking the Mickey out of him a little bit, out of his sincerity and machismo, and she's undermining him. I don't know how it translates, but right. but it was a little bit flirtatious, but in a kind of irreverent kind of way. But like later on when you're telling what is the truth, the audience is like, she's lying. She's saying, you know, is that... Do you- well, it's an interesting presentation because she's like taking over a robe and she's walking around in her yeah. slip and, you know, is that a seduction? How do men interpret that and how are they supposed to negotiate that? Yes. Which is part of the interesting kind of, you know, questions that the episode presents. And then I thought, you know, when you're like, I was never in the cabin. I was never, you know, I'm like, what is happening? You know, I thought there was so many moments where it was hard to tell where you were, you know? Yeah. Well, I I always just sort of played it from my own perspective. Like I wasn't wasn't in the cabin. Her own truth. But she's such a kind of um, unpredictable personality that, you know, and she's very volatile and emotional. So it it would throw anyone off trying to figure out where the reality gauge is there. Did you do a lot of work with Martha because there was so little prep time? I know that normally you would have a little more time. Did you have to talk a lot about what you were doing or was it just get in there and do it? You know, not really. But I think I just had the shorthand living in California and the whole yoga community. And, you you know, I think we all kind of know it. Yeah. Um, And (laughs) it's not often that you get to see it played with. um, But it was like, oh, great. We get to talk about green juice and coconut water. Not specifically, but just that sort of culture that is, I think, evolving consciousness. But there is, you know, this commodification of it. and, And it is rife for comedy. Your character, what you did to Melanie as a child, like you took her necklace and then you said you did in and like what yeah. do you think those parts of your personality are? I mean, that's not a very nice thing to do, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, on a certain level, she was raped. On a sort of another level, she has raped other people for their, you know, energy or their time or their mental contributions that she's claimed as hers. And I think that just adds some layers to the character that, yes, she's charismatic and she's fun and she was a victim and she's a bit outrageous and yet she's also got things to reflect about and there's more space for her to kind of grow and maybe become more centered with who she is and comfortable with who she really is. At the end, do you feel like she's going to be back to Lori or like where do you find her at the very end? Well, there's a cheeky beat at the end, which is cool. I think we all at the end find ourselves somewhere near the beginning. Right. Everyone does. That's the line she gets from Benson, right? Benson says, when your house burns down, you get a better you get view. a clear view yeah. of the sky. Yeah. Whereas I'm saying, well, that too. But also, I think everybody ends up where they began, right. you know. So the scene where you kind of have the breakdown where everybody's coming at you and saying mm-hmm. that you did this, you did that, and you're starting to kind of fall apart under mm-hmm. such the stress, and then you mm-hmm. start to believe 
Oh yeah. The, that, and then I didn't even know the term gaslighting yeah. comes from the movie Gaslight or Gaslight. It's a Bergman movie. Ingrid Bergman is in this movie where she loses her mind because okay. someone's been lying to her and she believes the lies. And that's where the term was coined from. Wow. Which I didn't know, but Martha was like, oh, blah, 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 you've seen the movie. I'm like, no, I haven't seen the movie. Oh, God, I've got to watch the movie. Yeah. That's another thing to watch. Yeah. Well, when you can't trust reality, I think it leaves you in this very unstable place. When you're breaking down like that, it's hard to go there or? You know, fortunately, the crew and the cast and Marishka, there's just a very, like, positive pro-acting, although it's a very well-oiled machine and moves fast, it feels like a very creative space. And I've worked on not a lot of television, but the television I've worked on, everybody's been super precise about the vocabulary and, and the words, whereas this... Yes, they are, but there's also space to just be and let stuff come through you, which was really cool. The guest actors that have been on, yourself, Ariel Winter, have all said that SVU allowed them the ability to do their thing. Yeah. So it allows the scene to evolve. um, And not everybody knows exactly what it's going to be, which keeps it a little bit exciting within, you know, the confines of what it is. It's a heavy episode, but it's kind of fun. Yeah. Did you guys have some fun? Like, was it like oh, yeah. fooling around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like at the conference. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's like, I mean, that was just hilarious on paper, like the vibrildo yeah, as a exactly. prop. And just the women, just having all these women. It was just kooky. There was a kind of a crazed fan who was amongst them. He was like this super bouncy girl. Um, yeah, it was women sort of taking the mickey out of their own state of whatever we're trying to figure out right now. Had you met Marishka before? No. No, I had so the first time. Yeah. yeah. So, so I was just very impressed, obviously. She just is an anchor to the show that brings so much um, energy to the scenes. Yeah. What would you say maybe was your favorite scene or favorite line in the episode? Well, I really liked going nuts. You did? <laughs> had a feeling. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, Rhonda Mitchell, thank you so much for coming on The Squad Room. Thank and you. And talking about this amazing episode. Thank you. Lisa Takeuchi Cullen is off to a new show. But before she left us, she had time to hang out in Squad Room again and tell us all about writing her final episode, Swimming with the Sharks. I'm on the Squad Room with Lisa Takeuchi Cullen talking about her great episode, Swimming with the Sharks, her final episode. (laughs) Possibly. (laughs) There was a promise made by Warren, though, right, that you could come back if you needed to. I plan to hold him to that. No, um, no, but I've had a, a wonderful time here. This is a show run by the most dedicated consummate professionals um, that I've ever had the honor to work with and be around. And, and just the joy with which everybody comes to work every day. I mean, yes, I think people are tired often because it's terrible wear on your body and psyche to put out 24 episodes in a season. It's one of the very rare shows that get to do that anymore. And yet I think that people are filled with such pride here and it's infectious. You know, my time here was brief, but I'll certainly never forget it. One of the things Warren talked to me about was that he wanted to do different types of episodes and he was bringing on a lot of new writers like yourself. And I think Swimming with Sharks falls into that category. And I was curious where the idea came from and what you were hoping to do with this one. 
The idea for this episode really stemmed from the character. Uh, We were interested in telling a story about a complicated woman, a woman who had achieved great things and yet perhaps was not all that she presented to the world. And we were inspired by people in real life, both male and female, who have in recent years had these Icarus-like, you know, shots to success and great wealth and fame. We were interested in what that does to a person, what that does to a person's morality, their sense of right and wrong, their sense of their place in the world. And then the crime, we were interested in the idea of gaslighting and victims of crimes being framed for their own crimes by the perpetrators. It's diabolical. It's about as diabolical as as you might imagine with our minds. And what kind of person would do that to somebody else? What kind of persons would do that to somebody else? What would the experience of being gaslighted drive a person to? Um, So that's how the story originated. Obviously, you have these ideas, which are strong ones. How do you come to the concept of putting it in this setting, the Weeby Wells world and all that? Yeah, that stemmed from the character. There are very hot trends, um, we think, that are in the news. And we love to focus on influencers and the wellness trend being, you know, one of them. There's a veneer of superficiality to those on the one hand. But on the other, I tend to ascribe to the philosophy that really, if it doesn't harm you, then what is the harm? However, I think others, you know, feel that perhaps one of the harms is emptying your pocketbook uh, right. of a lot of money. And another is giving us uh, sort of a false sense of values and aspiration toward beauty and a beautiful body and sexual health. And it probably also gives us false idols. Um, right. People we aspire to be without really examining who they are. Like Luna at one point doesn't want to come forward because it will shatter the image of who she is to the public, right? She, yes. She, it would make her seem weak or something. She has a line in her scene at the hospital where she says, I don't think you understand that my entire brand is about people wanting to be me and rape does not fit into that picture. That, I think, speaks to the core of who she is at that moment. Right. So you have the idea of someone rising really fast before you have the setting. I'm just curious how like the writing comes out. Like what's first, the idea of the star rising too fast? Or are you like, let's do a wellness episode? I think with every episode, it's different. It's chicken or the egg. Um, Wellness is very much in the news. And there are personalities in that field who sort of embody many of the the qualities that we also wanted to see in this character. It's also fun. Yeah, it was fun. It was so fun. And to uh, get to experience on set the fun that our art department had and our costume department had was just a delight. Um, Every single department works their tails off on every episode of this show. But when it's your own, you really, really appreciate it. And some of the locations that our location scouts found, the convention, the the wellness, um, you know, convention that opens up uh, the sex summit um, that opens up the episode (laughs) was held in this ballroom where the walls are made of onyx and they're lit from behind to look as though they are, it is glowing. The whole room is 
is glowing and it perfectly fit our idea of the kinds of beauty that would be most cherished by this character and and by the people who follow her. Then shot a scene in a, a hotel room that was meant to be designed to look as though it were in the same hotel. However, it was built on set here. And I bet our viewers would never guess it because our art department, Dean Toucher, um, designed these walls that look exactly like Onyx. And it's completely fabricated um, and it's lit by the room Mike where Burke, the assault takes place? Where the assault takes place is on our stages. I didn't Which know that. is incredible because... Never would have guessed that. It looks exactly like this hotel. And he took certain themes that the hotel has. Like, for instance, there were a lot of octagonal shapes that he incorporated into his design. It just flits by on your screen. And I think few, but are perhaps our, our most diehard fans, um, would take the time to recognize and appreciate the artistry that, that um, goes into that. Um, right, but it's, but there's, it's very impressive. Even if you're not paying attention, mm-hmm. there's no question to the viewer that that hotel room is in the same building as where that thing is. Like it all, it's all that world is all connected. Right, yeah. so he did his job. Yeah, you know whether oh, you're paying yeah. attention or not. I thought you went upstairs. Yeah, beautifully. Yeah, that, so. And that was exactly what we thought. Yeah. You know, we hoped you would think. Yes, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. So yeah, some of the fun of it, and mm-hmm. and there was quite a bit of fun with the names that you gave to certain, I guess, toys or objects. Um, did everybody have a good time with that? Or? <laughs> it's. I think. <laughs> It's it's always um, fun when we <laughs> when we get to come up with names for things. Um, that's another sort of you know pull back the curtain um, glimpse that I think our fans would really enjoy is just how much work also goes into each and every little name that's given to any tiny little thing. All of those names are cleared; they're legally yeah. cleared, um, and a lot of times they can't clear, so we have to pick a different name at the last minute. And a lot of you know signage has to change, and you know, and um, people's names even have to change. And every little gadget that you know we display, um, uh, even our our hero item, our pleasure giving <laughs> item, um, was designed and uh, you know and <laughs> and exists in this world. Um, <laughs> this world, yes. So it's a great deal of fun for us writers. Um, I know it's a tremendous amount of work for our crew, but I hope they're proud and I hope the audience appreciates the amount of labor and love and care that go into each and every little prop and, yeah. and detail. I always ask yeah. the writers about like when they had to do the boxing names for, uh, you know, the cat episode where she's boxing and Phenomenon from Lebanon. Those seem like places where you guys could have some fun, you know. This show, um, despite its dark subject matter, is a great deal of fun for all of us. I think every writer would attest to that. Um, not to say it's not work and right. not to say it's not stressful at times and difficult and, you know, exhausting at times. But the crew work 10 times harder than we do every day. And we all appreciate that. And we love to throw in our little funny sort of inside jokes, sometimes outside jokes, even jokes that people will get to bring a little bit of levity right, um, right. to the show. Yeah which, yeah, which you had here. And we have Rollins isn't buying it and Kat is maybe the new generation and she seems a little more open to what's being presented at the convention. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Yeah. And what's up with Rollins' knee? She said she didn't want tingles. She wanted something for her knee. Is she injured? Yeah, she has an, an injury and we will hear more about that. Warren and Julie have fought through all sorts of arcs for um, our main characters. And so every time you think that there's a little throwaway comment, rest assured it's not a Someone throwaway comment. There's, there's, there's a something, yeah. yeah. 
So we get this thing with Luna. We meet her. She's interesting. All these things are happening. Then there's the assault, which brings in Benson. And she seems to have a better understanding of Luna than anyone else, even through these twists and turns. And I wanted to talk about maybe that relationship and also how Benson is able to see when Luna eventually breaks down, like that there's something not right here. And just that story. The character of Luna was very much created uh, as a, a match for Benson. And that was a particular challenge and joy in creating her. Mariska is such a powerful actor that when a guest actor comes on board and is able to meet her at her level, we saw in Mariska, in her performance, um, a, a delight. That was really exciting to see. Rada Mitchell is Sar Luna, and she is an Australian actress who has done, you know, great work, um, but came in, she stepped off the plane from Australia and hit the ground running with an emotional scene. You know, she goes from zero to 60. Yeah, that's right. And she was an actress who had uh, so many tricks up her sleeve and so many surprising choices that by the time we got to the Rikers scene, which I think our viewers and fans know we film non-sequentially, so, you know, it's not necessarily in the order that that you see on television, we were all floored by her performance. Um, Rada brought a power and rawness to that role that then Captain Benson was able to respond to, I think, with a depth of compassion that felt incredibly genuine and heartfelt. Would you say that Benson's star is possibly believing her at the arraignment? Does she know something's not right? I always believed that Benson had a gut feeling. Yeah, you know how we all get that, right? Like that, just that gut feeling. And we may not always listen to it, but Benson as a character is almost always right, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, um, historically. But in this case, she was presented with a growing mountain of evidence, hard evidence that she was in fact wrong. Her gut was wrong. And there's a scene at the end of Act Two where she and Carisi are listening to Tisa Chi talking to Rollins and Kat in the interview room. And Benson says, I don't even know what to say. And she is just stumped um, because here is this extremely credible witness and victim and, and story that does not jibe with Benson's own instincts. Um, And in the end, she turns out to be right. You know, it's very clear. She knows something doesn't feel right. Just some of the things in the plot, we have obviously a lot of these twists and turns. And Rollins seems skeptical. Benson seems like she's got a gut feeling that this might be right. Then we have this breakdown, which I think a big thing for this episode was gaslighting and that concept. And I feel so horrible for Luna when she starts to not know what's true. And maybe you could comment on what that was all about for you in writing it. Yeah. We were fascinated by this idea that a person or persons could lie to another individual and make them believe that what was true was false, was up, was down, black, was white. And it has happened in recent years in various parts of this country that victims were gaslighted by their significant others, their, you know, their friends into believing they had committed crimes that they hadn't. Sometimes the gaslighting only works on the people around them, but even so, it might work on law enforcement. 
in which case you would be jailed for a crime that you did not commit. And other times it can have a psychological effect on the the victim of the gaslighting. So we were fascinated by that. One character arc that we were interested in was bringing this main character, Luna, our Icarus, um, who had, you know, soared to the, the sun all the way down to earth and then down to hell. And what would achieve that? What would bring her to her absolute lowest point? And we thought that more than the indignity and terror of physical crime was the mental crime, the emotional crime of making her believe that, in fact, she was the perpetrator. She yeah. was the one who had done wrong. Again, the actress, Rada Mitchell, brought that to life in a truly breathtaking way. It was just such a heavy scene. And then you have Benson coming out of that saying, you know, guilty people deny and blame others. They don't blame themselves. They don't think they're losing their minds. And that's when this all clicks for her. And then we don't think Hadid is going to work with us, but she kind of turns things around and and becomes an ally. Yeah, Hadid has a very interesting turn in this episode. Um, I'm a big believer in Hadid, as you may know from my interviews. And I'm always waiting. I always believe she's better than everyone thinks. I'm a fan of Zuleika Robinson's. I think that she is, besides being a beautiful actress, she's also a lovely human being. And to watch her character take its twists and turns this season has been really fascinating. In this episode, her character realizes that something is afoot and then decides okay, well, then we're going to catch them. Yeah. And we get to see her in a role that we haven't before, which is as interrogator. Yeah. Usually she is the receptacle of information. And this time she and Carisi are the ones who are obtaining the information. Um, and that scene in the courtroom where the two of them are grilling Tisa Chi was, yeah. it just, had, you know, when I first saw it on screen, it just sent chills down my spine because I loved that they just, sort of approached her. And again, Martha Mitchell directed this so beautifully where they just got came in closer and closer and no, closer it's, and it's, then and then they pounced. Um, and It uh, might be my favorite uh-huh. in the episode of many great scenes. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that scene. I don't know if I'm just so happy that they're together. Do, like, yeah. I don't know what it is, but I love that Martha scene. Martha Mitchell specializes in courtroom scenes. She is very, very yeah. good at them and she loves to do them. So I think she had a very clear idea of what she wanted to achieve. And the actress, um, her name is Kim Wan. Um, this is one of her first... TV gigs. Uh, She has been doing Shakespeare for 10 years, and she is a prodigious talent. Um, I think that we'll be seeing a lot more of her, but she just nailed every take. We just completely got Uh, that she was a big, fat liar. (laughs) It's so so good. (laughs) So the episode is bookended by two Benson quotes, um, survival takes strength, and when your house burns down, you get a clearer view of the sky. Was that intentional to kind of have her at the beginning and end summing things up for us? Yeah. And the other, you know, bookend is that Luna steals both of those lines. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which I love. Yeah. I'm going to have that. Yeah. Can I steal that? Yeah. Um, great. Um, we thought that um, those lines encapsulated both those characters. You know, Benson's truly uh, genuine regard for truth and justice and her compassion. Um, survival takes strength. That's something. 
that I feel that, you know, I learned working on this show and getting to hear from and read about and um, and learn from survivors who are such an integral part, I think, of the SVU universe and who inform so much of this show and our stories. I think survival takes uncommon strength and I stand in awe of survivors every day. And then her last line, you know, what happens when you're house burns down is that you get a clear view of the sky um, that's part of a haiku that, you know, again, Warren's crazy, brilliant mind, it's just rattles around with bits and pieces that he picks like a magpie from everywhere. Um, and I hunted it down. You know, he sort of spouted, he spouts words when we're plotting and, you know, you have to just quickly jot things down to, right. to look things up later and, and see if you can try to mold it into the script. And I'm really glad that it worked with the, you know, the bookend of, of Luna yeah. also. We wanted to show very much that the episode ended with a note of hope. Yes. Um, that Luna came back from this truly horrific experience and she was able to see the sky again. Yeah, it was really nice. I'm sorry that this is your last one and that you so have much. to go, but you went out with a bang. <laughs> Thank and you very Lisa, much. Lisa, thanks for coming on the Squad Room. Thank you. That's a wrap for the Squad Room. Next week, Kelly Giddish and Lindsay Pulsifer are here. The Rollins sisters. Watch out. Please subscribe to the Squad Room wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a thing. As you know, we love hearing from you. We want to hear from you. Please follow us on Instagram at NBCSVU and at Wolf Entertainment and on Twitter at NBCSVU and at Wolf Ent. The Squad Room is hosted and produced by me, Anthony Roman. It is executive produced by Elliot Wolf and Warren Light. This episode was recorded by Joe Tisdall and Jessica Damari. Post-production was handled by James Asciutto. And we're sending a big thank you to Victoria Pollock for all of her help. The Squad Room is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>